Well, this is the, uh, the third of our three-week series called Magic Kingdom, though as I, as I think back about the stories that we've um, examined in the series, I think we probably could have just called this series Three Weird Things That Jesus Did, because each one of the stories has their own particular wrinkle of the weirdness to it. Two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus pulled off this, um, this massive publicity stunt, riding his donkey into the city of Jerusalem to, to announce to the entire city, to everybody around, that he was the Messiah that God had sent in the world. He was the king that God had sent to usher in God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And remember, we, I mentioned this last week, whenever we use the phrase God's kingdom, all we mean is the things happening on earth the way they would be if God were allowed uh, to be in charge. If we would stop undermining what it is that God wants to do with the world, which is to fill it with peace, with wholeness and healing and life and love and joy and so on. And uh, Jesus is the king that God has sent into the world to bring God's kingdom, but God's kingdom is never really, never really unfolds in the way that we expect. In fact, people have often called it the upside down kingdom, which is why the logo is the way that it is. Um, and the question that we posed a couple weeks ago was simply this. Would you be willing to submit your life to the authority of Jesus, even if things don't turn out the way that you expected or hoped? Last week, we looked at a second story of a weird thing that Jesus did. He gets to Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, and he starts flipping over tables and making a whip and driving animals out of the temple courtyard and yelling at people and so on. Because... Um, he's trying to clear out all of the people and all of the stuff that's making it hard for people to find a place in the presence of God. We talked about this last week, that Jesus was flipping over tables to make a space in the presence of God for the broken and the hurting and those who had been far from God and the outcast and the outsider and the backslider. God was inviting everybody to come into uh, the presence of God, to worship him, to be in prayer, to be in relationship with him and was inviting us to be the kind of people not only who accept that invitation to enter into God's presence in relationship but to be the kind of people who do what he did, who just who are flipping over tables to make sure that, that nothing is putting obstacles in people's way in terms of hindering the ability of the, of the broken and the hurting and the outcast and outsider and backslider to, to come into the presence of God. Well, this morning, uh, we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 21, verse 14, where Jesus is still in the temple having created the commotion that he created last week, and verse 14 says this, that the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. It's an interesting note that, that Matthew would specifically identify that the blind and the lame came to Jesus to be healed, because to varying degrees, the Jews didn't even really believe that the blind and the lame should be in the temple at all. Um, the Jewish law says that if you were a part of the priestly families, you were not allowed to serve if you were blind or lame. The, this idea of the, the, that um, a disability was not allowed to enter into the presence of God. That was how they processed their understanding of what God wanted 
from them. And the, the rabbis kind of picked up on this and extended it a little bit and said, you know what, if you're blind and lame, you don't even really have to show up at the temple. We don't even really expect to see you at festivals and stuff. You don't need to be there. But there was a one section of Jews who actually pushed that even further and said, no, it's not that they shouldn't, or it's not that they don't need to be there. The blind and the lame shouldn't even be allowed in the temple court. These are people who should not be invited into the presence of God. And so here they are, the blind and the lame, coming to Jesus in the temple and asking Jesus to heal them, which he does. Jesus embraces them as outcasts, outsiders, backsliders. Jesus embraces them into the presence of God in the temple. Which, by the way, in Matthew chapter 11, healing the blind and the lame, stuff that medical science, especially uh, with the lame, still has trouble doing. Um, Jesus was performing miracles that uh, were indicative of the fact that he was the Messiah. So this is Jesus goes, he's in the temple, he's healing the, the blind and the lame. And it says in verse 15 that when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Now everybody's loving what Jesus is doing except for the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the really the highest standing religious leaders in all of Israel, the most um, recognized, spiritually mature men in the entire nation. They see all this going on, that Jesus is healing the blind and the lame, that these children who are playing around Jesus are singing this song, Hosanna to the Son of David. They're, they're singing the song they heard their parents singing on the way into the city earlier that morning. Um, I don't think these kids are... I don't think they know what they're singing. I don't think they know who Jesus is. I don't think they are praising him or ascribing any sort of really spiritually significant meaning to the words. I think they're just playing. I think they're just repeating the song that they had heard everybody else singing. But there was something about this whole scene, about Jesus healing people who probably weren't even supposed to be in the temple and the children calling him the Messiah and sing his praise or whatever. It just rubs them completely the wrong way. They're indignant. They're offended by the entire scene because they don't buy into this Jesus as Messiah idea at all. And so verse 16, they come to Jesus. Do you hear what these children are saying? They ask them. And that's not an innocent question. They're kind of prompting Jesus to action. They're like, you know, kind of tell them to shut up. They shouldn't be singing stuff like that. Uh, yeah, replied Jesus. <laughs> Just an awesome answer. Do I hear what they're singing? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. And he looks at them and says, have have you never read Psalm 8, verse 2, where it says, From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And it says he left them and went out of the city, out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Jesus says to them, No, I hear what's being sung. Have you never heard the, when the scriptures say that sometimes out of the mouths of children come the most spiritually profound and spiritually insightful truths that you can ever imagine? Has, have you never known that to be the case? And Jesus is kind of hinting to them that the kids who don't know anything, again, another category of people who are outsiders, 
that the kids who don't know anything were speaking with greater spiritual insight than the spiritual leaders of the entire nation of Israel, the people who ran the temple and the people who determined how to understand the scriptures. These kids understood who Jesus was better than the the highest ranking spiritual leaders in all of Israel. So this is the scene. This is the backdrop to the story that we want to look at this morning. It says in verse 18, early the next morning or early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. The, the next morning, Jesus gets up. He spent the night in Bethany outside of the city of Jerusalem. The next morning, he gets up. He and his crew get up early, and they're going to head back to the city of Jerusalem. But they want to get an early start. They want to beat the traffic. They want to beat the crowds. They want to get back to Jerusalem, back to the temple where they're celebrating the festival of the Passover. And they skip breakfast to get on the road early. And as they're walking the two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem, suddenly Jesus' stomach starts to growl. He's like, oh, I'm not sure that was a great idea. Like, I'm, I'm starving, hungry. And he looks up, and right then he sees by the side of the road a fig tree that's in full leaf, which is amazing news to Jesus. Like, it's just a, this is like I'm seeing a, uh, you know, an oasis in the middle of the desert. This is an amazing sight to Jesus because every Palestinian knows that the way fig trees grow in the Middle East, at the very least, I don't know how they grow elsewhere, but, but the leaves grow at the same time as the fruit. The fruit and the leaves appear together on a fig tree. So if you see a fig tree from a distance and it's full of leaves, what that fig tree is communicating to you is that it is also full of fruit. Now, it wasn't the season, the Gospel of Mark tells us, it wasn't the time for figs, but Jesus sees this amazing fig tree, this complete anomaly that somehow early in the season has already developed this full full complement of fruit in in its branches. And Jesus rushes over to the fig tree and he begins to look underneath the leaves to pick the fruit and have some breakfast. And he discovers that there's absolutely nothing on this tree. The fig tree is all leaf and no fruit. It says the end of verse 19, then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. (laughs) What? Like, this is why I say three weird things that Jesus did. What on earth is that? Right? Like, is Jesus just so angry about not getting breakfast that he unleashes his Jesus power to destroy this fig tree? Um, like, it's just a weird story. Outside of the weirdness, at least to you know, some of us, that Jesus is healing people and has the power to wither a tree with the word, you know, just by speaking the word. Um, for those of us who believe that Jesus is the son of God who's come to earth to rescue humanity and so on, some of those questions we just take by faith, that Jesus had the power to do these kinds of things. But Jesus just withers this tree. What on earth is that all about? Well, I, like the other two actions that we've looked at, riding the donkey and, and flipping over the tables in the temple, this is a symbolic action that Jesus uh, enacts in order to make a point. You have to remember... Or you have to situate this story in the context of the, of the flow of the narrative. Jesus has just the previous day come out of the temple. 
having had a conversation with the highest ranking spiritual leaders in the entire land of Israel, the chief priests, the people who run the entire temple, the whole worship life of Israel run by these men, and the teachers of the law who are the ones responsible for explaining the scriptures to everybody. He's spoken with the highest ranking officials who by all external experience or all external appearances were actually the pinnacle of what a life looked like lived in a relationship with God. They were the role model. They were assumed to be the most spiritually mature people in Israel. This is what it looks like to be holy and godly and to be the kind of person that God is inviting everybody to be. To all external appearances, these people were the most spiritual people in the entire nation of Israel, but their hearts were hostile towards Jesus. When you began to peel away the layers of the outward appearance, what you began to discover is that in their heart, there was nothing there. They hadn't connected at all to what it was that God was wanting to do among them. Because God had sent Jesus and they had rejected Jesus. Despite outward appearances, they hadn't understood the heart of God in the least. In effect, they were all leaf and no fruit. If you judged by outward appearance, they would, for all appearance, have been the most spiritually mature people in the entire nation. But if you looked at their heart, there was nothing of spiritual value or substance there. I think what Jesus is doing symbolically in this story of the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus is illustrating how much God detests hypocrisy. When the external appearance isn't backed up by a heart that is fully connected to who Jesus is, right? Which is why you can't tell how a person, even yourself, you can't tell how you're doing spiritually just by looking on the outside of things. Because this is how we do it, right? Like this is how we do it. If we're, usually we're not really assessing ourselves, we're usually assessing the people around us and how we think they're doing. And, and so we ask ourselves questions like, well, how often do they come to church? Or, or how often do they miss? Or we ask, you know, when they come, are they standing during the singing with hands raised and eyes closed and they're weeping? Or are they just standing still with their hands in their pockets. We ask questions like, um, you know, when it comes to the sermon this time, are they feverishly scribbling notes? Well, everybody's feverishly scribbling notes. That's a bad example. But do they, do they volunteer? Are they part of the first impressions team? Do they serve in M&S or with the kids? Or um, are they engaged with Rose City kids? Are they engaged with migrant workers? Are they um, you know, volunteering in our shelter community? Do they give to the church? Do they sponsor a child? Are they giving to the child survival program that we're doing in partnership with Compassion Canada? Like we kind of assess ours and other people's spiritual maturity based on what we see on the outside. And the truth of what Jesus is communicating is that that's not at all how God measures how we're doing. There's a passage of scripture in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. It says this, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What God wants to see among people who are 
eager and interested to live lives that are fully devoted to loving him and um, to loving themselves and loving each other and loving the world, to following Jesus Christ with everything they have and everything they are. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the kind of stuff that goes on in our heart. From this story, I would say one of the places that God looks is he looks to see what happens in us and in our lives when our vision of reality doesn't necessarily align with who Jesus is. Right? This was the problem with the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They had a particular understanding of who God is and what God wanted from their life and whatever. And that understanding of God and of life and whatever, that didn't line up at all with who Jesus is. And so they utterly rejected who Jesus is and they went with their own understanding. And we have, that happens in our life all the time. That our vision for what life is supposed to, how life is supposed to work just, uh, comes into contact with who Jesus is, runs across the grain of who Jesus is. And the the heart level question is, how do we respond in those kinds of moments? So just thinking about some of the things Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You have a relationship that's gone sideways. You're in the middle of a fight, people are angry, insults are being thrown around. How do you respond in that situation? Because Jesus' heart is a heart of forgiveness and humility and repentance and reconciliation. Is that, um, is that where you're at? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about our sexuality and says that the appropriate use of human sexuality is an act of commitment that is shared between spouses within the context of marriage. Is that how you're using your sexuality? Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount about the role of honesty in the life of a disciple, of, of loving truth-telling, the, the, a, way that's, oh, a way of being in relationship that's always committed to telling the truth, but doing it with such love that it only ever builds up the people who hear it. Is, is that what you're committed to, or do you play games with the truth? Jesus talks about how His disciples respond when they are insulted or hurt or attacked by somebody else. He says they don't retaliate. They don't seek revenge. Instead, they drown the other person in kindness and generosity. Is that what we choose? Is that where our heart is? Jesus invites us into a life of love for God and for everybody around us, including people who hate us, including people who hurt us. He invites us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to bless those who curse us, to do good to those who hurt us. Is that where our heart is? See, it's in those moments where our vision for how we are going to do life runs across the grain of who the person of Jesus is. It's how we respond in those moments that tells us, I don't know about everything, but it tells us a whole lot about where our heart is actually at. If you want to understand where you're at in your relationship with God, it has very little to do with how often you attend church and how much you raise your hands, though those are, can be good things. It has everything to do with what happens in your heart when your vision for life cuts across the grain of who the person of Jesus is. 
is. And the invitation of Jesus in the story is for us to become the kind of people who have followed him with our whole heart, who, haven't, who aren't just putting on a, an external show of religiosity, but who at the core of our heart are, are pressing in to become the people that Jesus wants us to be. And this is what comes out in the rest of the story. In verse 20, the disciples see the fig tree wither and they're amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they ask. It's just kind of a weird question, isn't it? Like, it, on the, like I was expecting it to wither. I just didn't know it would happen that fast. Like that's just sort of weird. Or, or is the question more, Jesus, can, can you, how did you do that? Like could you teach me to do that? Because I have this tomato plant at home and it produces these crappy little cherry tomatoes and I'd like to just curse the whole Thing. It's kind of a weird question, but I think the heart of the question is essentially this. Jesus, what is this all about? What's happening? Why did this happen? And Jesus replies to them, verse 21, he says, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it'll be done. An equally uh, useful use of, of miraculous power. Uh, <laughs> if you believe... You will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. The disciples look at what Jesus has done and they ask him. I think they probably recognize that, you know, the symbolism of what's happened. They've asked Jesus, help us understand what this means for us. And Jesus says to them, I'll tell you what it means. It means that if you engage in a life, you're amazed at what happened to this fig tree. Because amazement is like this theme that runs through the Gospel of Matthew. This is the ninth time someone was amazed at Jesus. Four times they're amazed at his teaching. And four times they're amazed at the healing that he brings or his miraculous power that flows through his life. Jesus says, you're amazed at this. Wait till you see the amazing things God will do in and through people whose hearts are fully devoted to him in prayer. Just wait until you see. They're standing on the Mount of Olives where they're having this conversation and Jesus says to them, you could say to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the Mediterranean Ocean and, or Mediterranean Sea and it'll just get up and jump in the sea. Um, it, not that you would want to do that. It's just you won't believe the way God's power is operative in the life of the person whose heart is fully devoted, whose heart is fully devoted to Jesus. In fact, he says, if you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And I feel like I need to press pause on that verse for just a minute because I think there are people across all three of our locations who are almost ready to cry, you know, BS on that verse. Especially in this season that we're in. It seems like we're in a season as a church right now where there's just an extraordinary amount of hurt in our community. Diseases that are ravaging people's bodies and stealing their brains. Mental illness and addiction. There are, um, you know, folks whose loved ones are in car accidents and marriages that are exploding and relationships with kids that are imploding. Like there's just, it seems, it feels like an enormous amount of pain in our community right now. And I imagine that there are people across all of our locations who read that verse that says, if you believe, you receive whatever you ask. And the question that comes to mind is, then why isn't God answering my prayer? Either God's a liar because this isn't true or um, I'm a failure because for whatever reason, I can't generate enough faith for God to answer my prayer. And I just want to say as clearly as I can, neither of those things are true. This verse isn't saying 
that if you have enough faith, enough psychological certainty that God will say yes, then God will answer every one of your individual prayers for healing or for a spouse or for a kid or for a job or whatever the case may be. This, isn't, this verse isn't saying that. In fact, if you, if you read through this in the original language, every one of these verbs is in the plural rather than the singular. God isn't, Jesus isn't even talking about the prayers that you or I pray as individuals. He's talking about the prayers that we pray together as a community. The us, our prayer. And Jesus has taught us what our prayer is. It's that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That the world would become among us and in us and through us a little bit more the way God always wanted the world to be, full of peace and joy and love and laughter and healing. And, and that prayer that God's kingdom would come among us is different than, God, would you give me a spouse? God, would you give us a kid? God, would you get me a job? God, would you heal? They, some of those things might be God's kingdom coming among us, but those are not the same thing. The prayer God's, would your kingdom come among us is essentially the prayer that says, God, would the goodness, truth, and beauty of your loving presence be obvious in our midst as we journey through these circumstances we find ourselves in? Could you make it so, God, that when we look back on this season, what we see is you operative in our midst through everything that we went through? Would we, could we see your loving presence in the midst of it? Could we see you at work doing what you do among us? as we journey through these situations we find ourselves in. Because if you believe, if what you believe is that God is obligated to answer a believing prayer with a yes, every believing prayer with a yes, either, you know, on the one hand, you're saying God is weak because if you can muster enough psychological certainty that God says yes, then you've actually forced God to do what you say rather than you submitting yourself and doing what God says. That makes you God and God servant, and that's just not the way it works. On the other hand, it makes God cruel because if God says no, then what God is doing is holding your loved one's health hostage because of your lack of faith. Jeez, I would have healed your spouse, but you just didn't believe enough. It sucks to be them. God is not like that. What Jesus is inviting us into is a life of prayer where we as a community pray what Jesus has taught us to pray. God, in the midst of wherever we find ourselves, would your kingdom come among us? Would you bring healing to my relationship with you? Would you bring healing to my relationship with myself? Would you bring healing to our relationships with each other? Would you bring healing through, our, through us as a community into the world? God, your, the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. God, would you give us everything that we need to continue to participate in this life that you've called us to? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. God, would you forgive us for the ways that we make our lives about something other than the coming of your kingdom? And would you please um, give us the strength to forgive everybody else who cuts across our life and heart? And would you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Would you protect us from wandering off the path and getting into all sorts of stuff that you've never invited us into? In effect, the prayer is, God, would you make us into your kingdom coming, your will being done kind of people as a community today? Jesus says, if you pray that prayer in faith, you will be amazed at what God does in your heart, what God does in your soul, the kind of person that you begin to, 
to become a kind of person where God's, the goodness, truth, and beauty of God's loving presence radiates from your person so that people who have been with you get a feel for what Jesus is like, which is exactly what Jesus wanted in the first place. It was people who weren't just all leaf, but for whom there was substance underneath. But Jesus says, you have to, this is the kind of thing that comes through believing prayer. And I've said already that belief is not having the psychological certainty to be convinced that God is going to say yes to your prayer. When you translate the Greek word for faith, pistis, into the English language, most of the time you should translate the verb with the word trust trusting prayer. Do you trust in the midst of your prayer that no matter what happens in your life, that if you lay yourself down as a part of this community before the person of Jesus, that God will be faithful to do what God does, which is to show up in the goodness, truth, and beauty of his loving presence and miraculously redeem the situation so that you can look at what's happening all around you and say God's kingdom came in the midst of the difficulty of that circumstance. Krista and I in our own story would look back now and say we would not be the people we are and we would not be in the place that we were if it were not for what God did in us and among us in the very darkest moments of our lives. Those moments which God never planned and never chose and never sent for us. Those moments became the moments where God broke through and we became fundamentally different people because God found a way to bring resurrection into the dark of the death of those moments do you trust in the midst of those circumstances that that's who God is going to be and that's what God is going to do the other way that the word pistis or faith should be translated is with the word faithfulness will you not only trust that that's what God will do but will you commit yourself to a faithful following of Jesus Christ, to a patterning of your life after who the person of Jesus is? Will you align your heart with who Jesus is and what Jesus is about so that over time you are living into, you're trusting God enough to make the choices that align with the heart of Jesus so that you're choosing reconciliation, you're choosing faithfulness and integrity with your sexuality. You're choosing loving truth-telling. You're choosing to respond with harm and hurt and insult with generosity and kindness. You're choosing to love the enemy. You're choosing to embrace and accept people the way God has embraced and accepted you and all your failure and flaws and faults, warts and all. God has wrapped his arms around you and said, I love you. And is and you're choosing to live that sort of life towards everybody else, are you willing, in the midst of wherever God has you right now, to be a person of prayer who is praying that God would do in you the things that God wants to do, and then you're living trusting him and being faithful to the call of Jesus, And because Jesus says, if you will and if you do, you will be amazed, you will be blown away by the mountains God moves in your life to help you become the person that he's always dreamed that you could be. The kingdom coming, God's will on earth doing kind of person who radiates the goodness, truth, and beauty of the loving presence of Jesus to everyone who interacts with you. Jesus says that's the kind of person 
who isn't just all leaf, but whose life is filled with the substance of the kind of fruit that God himself is hungering for. Let's pray together. I imagine that there are some people here uh, this morning who are going through, I, I don't just imagine, I know it, people who are going through awful, painful, difficult circumstances. And if that's you this morning, if you carried something heavy in here this morning, I just want to pray for you. Father, I pray that your kingdom coming in those people's lives, God, would look like you lifting that burden right off of them. God, I pray that you would meet the needs of loneliness, that you would overwhelm infertility, that you would bring healing, that you would inspire humility and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation with relationships that are blowing up. I pray that you would give people strength who are battling with guilt because of repeated destructive sinful patterns in life. Would you give strength and courage? Would you give self-forgiveness? God, would you just lift whatever that burden is, would you just lift it off so that we could take a step back and say, look at how your kingdom has come, God. But if, if that's not what it's going to look like, would you please come in power and in strength to do the amazing thing of the kingdom work that you want to do in us rather than all around us. God, for all of us who are here, would you deepen our love for you? Would you help us embrace a love for ourselves that is rooted in your love for us? Would you help us live into a love for each other? that looks like the way relationships were always meant to look? Would you help us as a community love the world, all of it, everybody in it, in the way that you have loved? Could you bring the kingdom in us and among us in ways that we could have never dreamed, in ways that not only amaze us, but amaze a watching world? God, I, I pray, there are some here this morning I know who struggle with trusting God. Trusting that God is good, trusting that God is loving, trusting that God is faithful. God, would you give people in our community the courage to trust you, to not give up on you, to not walk away from you, to not waver. God, I know there are people who struggle with doubt, and I know there are people who struggle with questions. God, would you give them the courage to keep putting one foot in front of the other despite their courage or despite their doubt and their questions? God, would you lift any shame that rests on somebody because they grapple with questions and doubt, with, because they don't think they have enough faith. God, I know there are people in our community who struggle with faithfulness, who would love to make decisions that better resemble the person of Jesus, but who continually find themselves pulled off to the left or pulled off to the right and heading off on paths that are not paths you've ever invited us into. God, would you please... Fill those folks with the power and the strength of your Holy Spirit to win, to, to defeat the destructive power of sinful habits in their lives. Would you set us free? God, in all things, 
Would you make us the kind of community and the sorts of individuals who aren't just all leaf, but there's nothing on your side. We're not just this big religious show of trying to, you know, prove to the world how godly and spiritual we are. I pray, God, that you would make us the kind of community where underneath the leaf, underneath the show is the substance of real fruit, of the real life of Jesus Christ taking root in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Name.